What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. So today, uh, it is my pleasure to interview Dr. Dr. James Collins, or what he would like to be called Jim, a world-famous American bioengineer and a termer professor of medical engineering and science and professor of biological engineering at MIT. Uh, Dr. Collins is one of the founders of synthetic biology and emerging field in biological science. Uh, Dr. Collins has also made multiple synthetic biology breakthroughs in biotech and biomedicine, which includes paper-based diagnostics, um, for Zika and Ebola, programmable cells that serve as living diagnostics and living therapeutics to detect and treat infections, uh, rare genetic metabolic uh, disorders, and inflammatory uh, bowel uh, disease, and has made many important discoveries in the field of biomedical devices. So Dr. Collins, you've also won many awards, and you're also a member of the National Academy of, of um, Engineering. So with such a successful career, can you tell us first about your, your um, educational background? Sure. You know, I'll, I'll maybe start, you know, I think education starts in the home. And, you know, I was brought up uh, in a home that really valued education. My dad is an electrical engineer. My mom was a mathematics teacher. And my dad, his team worked in the aviation and aerospace industry. So among other things, his team helped build the altimeter for the Apollo 11 mission. Oh. remembered watching them land on the moon in our home. I was four years old and it was a really proud moment in my family. And my dad used to bring the tech that his team was developing home and was brought up really surrounded by gadgets and technology. And as a elementary school student and then as a junior high student, middle school student, I saw both of my grandparent grandfathers become disabled. One lost his vision and became blind. The other had a series of strokes and became hemiplegic. And whilst I saw these amazing things that my dad and his colleagues were making to shoot stuff up in the sky and shoot stuff out of the sky, I saw nothing being done to restore function to these two men who I loved and cared for very much. And so even at an early stage decided I wanted to see what I could do to develop technologies that could help enhance or restore people's health. And 
this was now in the 70s into early 80s when I was in high school and biomedical engineering was not yet established in many universities as a serious discipline. So I was considering doing electrical engineering and in the end came down to deciding between MIT and Holy Cross of all places. Holy Cross is a small Jesuit liberal arts school in Massachusetts. And I chose Holy Cross for multiple reasons and studied physics there with a particular focus on biology and applications of biology from a biological physics standpoint. I then was fortunate enough to get a Rhodes Scholarship that sent me to Oxford, where I then studied medical engineering to do my doctorate. And there focused on biomechanics, studying how people walk, run, maintain balance, as well as neural control. So did mathematical modeling of how networks of neurons could control leg locomotion, in particular in legged animals. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned that you went into that you went for to Oxford for your doctorate degree. So what do you notice going to Oxford about the way science is conducted in the UK as compared to American universities? You know, I, I would say I'll, I'll maybe speak both to science, but then also to uh, a broader comment on academic life in England versus America. So on the former on science, you know, I, I think in America, there's a, a, a focus on just putting in huge hours in the lab and on, I wouldn't say mindless execution, but really turn the crank. And at Oxford in particular, the emphasis was more on, on careful, sustained thinking and pushing for innovation. And so there were more breaks in the day at Oxford for tea time and for meeting with colleagues, talking about science, thinking about science than I find in the American world. On the broader academic intellectual difference, what was fascinating about Oxford were the common rooms that were available. So I was a grad student, so I was in the middle common room, but also had a position that allowed me to go to the senior common room with fellows. And in each of these common rooms, it was fascinating to come together with intellects, academic scholars from different disciplines. Rarely did I meet somebody from engineering. It was usually somebody from philosophy or politics, economics, or history, international relations. And I got a huge amount out of those discussions, which would go on for extended periods, hours, and could at times be exhausting, but for the most part, were really stimulating. And we don't have that mixing of folks across disciplines mm -hmm. in any real format in the American system. And, and I really valued what I had for, during my time in grad school at Oxford, and, and I miss it. I think we should work in the US to introduce such systems. And so you're also a very gifted and committed teacher. You've won many teaching awards across the country. Uh, what makes a great teacher in your opinion? And what is the difference between a great teacher and a great scientist? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So in terms of a great teacher, you know, I think you need to be, you need to be committed to your students. I, I think the, the critical thing is to recognize that in the most part, we have students that are talented, but they don't know the material that you're presenting. So too many of my colleagues kind of dismiss these young students because they don't know what they know. And my point is, well, they're in my class because they don't know what I know on this subject. And I'm gonna use the opportunity now to excite them, to engage them. And very much I believe in teaching fundamental principles that will allow them to learn the basic skills, the techniques in a given discipline, but then to provide context. So I'm gonna provide context for them on why it matters that I'm teaching you this. So in engineering, in applied mathematics, there's you know, some stuff that everything tends to be rigorous, but some of it kind of be boring. And I think it's important, particularly to, the, to today's students, to provide them an understanding of why are we teaching you this and to excite them and show it can be applied. You know, that then speaks to teacher versus scientists. You know, I, I 
in my time, I'm now 31 years a professor, have heard often that you know the, the best scientists make for the best teachers. I, I don't actually agree. And I don't think you need to be an active scientist to be a really good science teacher, but I do think you need to be an active scholar, meaning you should be aware of what's happening so that you can bring those stories, those contextual anecdotes, those contextual cases into your work to make what again could be dry material, but fundamental important material relevant to your students. And so knowing what's happening in that lab down the street, knowing what's happening in a lab across the country is important, but you don't need to be that scientist. And it's really two different skills and sets. And I don't think in the US we value enough those differences. And, and in many cases, many top universities aren't hiring with teaching in mind, they're hiring with research in mind. And I think we need to shift that focus towards more teaching, given the need to train this next generation and excite them, particularly given the incredibly high tuition costs that they're, they're, they're carrying. And uh, speaking of um, science, one of your most noted accomplishments is your development of the paper-based diagnostics for Zika and Ebola. So regarding this, you know, intriguing like, um, discovery, can you explain the whole process and its um, significance? Yeah, you know, it grew out of our work in synthetic biology, going back to the late 90s, so probably around the time you and many of your listeners were born, Karen, we recognize that you could introduce engineering principles at the molecular level. And we, along with several other labs, began to advance what became synthetic biology, this idea you can use engineering principles to model, design, and build synthetic gene circuits and other molecular components, and then use these circuits and components to rewire living cells, endowing them with novel functions for a variety of applications. Okay. Going back now about seven years, oh, go ahead, sorry, Karen, go ahead. Uh, 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 you can go ahead. Yeah, so going back now seven years ago, following a lot of efforts on engineering synthetic gene circuits and using these inside living cells, Keith Pardee, a postdoc uh, in my lab, began to play with cell-free systems. What are these? This is this idea that you can open up a living cell, remove the machinery of that living cell, which consists of DNA, RNA, ribosomes, other molecular machines, molecular components of molecules like ATP, nucleotides, and play with them in petri dishes and test tubes. This was not new. This has been done for decades before I was born in molecular biology. And Marshall Nirenberg, for example, worked out the RNA code before I was born using cell-free systems. Keats advanced first was to show that you could introduce synthetic gene circuits into cell-free systems and they could function. You could have transcription and translation. But his key discovery was that he demonstrated that you could take a cell-free system along with a synthetic biology construct, spot it onto paper, freeze dry it, and then sometime later rehydrate that cell-free extract along with the synthetic biology component circuit and reactivate it so that it would function as if it was inside a living cell, but now it's been embedded into paper. And so it could perform transcription and translation. And we got very excited about a number of applications, the most dominant being that we could use this to create low cost, easy to transport paper-based diagnostics, wherein we could embed self-reactracts along with various synthetic biology sensors onto paper that could then be taken out into the field in low resource settings without need for refrigeration. So you can just stick it in your pocket, get on a plane, take it around the world, use it, stick it in a regular envelope, send it around the world, use it, and use it to test for bacterial pathogens, viral pathogens, parasites, as well as human, human host cell responses. Yeah, and so regarding this paper-based diagnostics, uh, you no, know, there's also COVID-19 going on. So would the paper-based diagnostics work for COVID-19 
or any other type of disease? They do. So Keith Pardee has launched a company called Encarta using some of our earlier sensors to address COVID-19. And going back a few years ago, we also demonstrated in addition to synthetic biology elements, you could embed CRISPR elements into mm -hmm. paper and other cell-free settings. And we launched a company called Sherlock Biosciences that pivoted in the beginning of the pandemic to actually produce the first CRISPR-based FDA-approved product, which was a COVID diagnostic. It's used in clinical labs, CLIA-based labs. They've now partnered with five different global diagnostic firms that are on pace to do 10 million tests per month using this test. Yes, yes. I personally think like the whole COVID testing phase, phase is like a bit, I would say too long, basically. Because like for my school, we have to do COVID tests in order to go back to school. And I personally think like getting swabbed in the nose too much is a bit uncomfortable. So so, so I mean, I mean, like, I actually don't know, but um, I should, I maybe should try the paper-based diagnostics or see if my school accepts it or not. So and nowadays, you know, you can program a computer or a video game, but however, uh, programming a cell or cells is a fascinating concept that could potentially save millions of lives. So how do you program a cell, essentially? You know, you program a cell by basically introducing DNA or RNA elements for the most part and or directly protein, but let's focus on the DNA and RNA. So the, uh, you know, the, the instructions, so to speak, of a cell are typically embedded in this genome and DNA. And what we and others recognize is that we could make circuits just as an electroengineer would out of electronic components, but now out of biological components, primarily DNA-based elements, promoters, genes, terminators. And these circuits could be programmed to have addressable memory. They could be programmed to sense things. They could be programmed to produce output. And so you could then introduce a synthetic circuit into a living cell that could enable it now to be programmed to sense something in its environment, make a decision on what was sensed, and to produce something that would act on its environment. And uh, regarding this new technology, um, there's probably some concerns of people thinking that if you manipulate this new, new technology in an uh, unethical ways, we could have really catastrophic results. So for example, you probably heard the gain of function of research facing a lot of ethical questions in recent months. So uh, my question is, are the current regulations we have adequate for preventing researchers from conducting experiments that could lead to dangerous and even catastrophic outcomes? You know, I, I think they are in that starting in the mid to late seventies with an Asilomar conference, folks working in what became biotechnology introduced a number of regulations for biosafety and biocontainment for these early efforts. And I think these are relevant to our current efforts in synthetic biology, which will do different safety levels, one, two, three, four, depending upon the risk of serious disease or illness from the pathogens working on. Synthetic biology basically takes genetic engineering to a next level where we now introduce the ability for control. So I do think the present regulations are appropriate and we also can use synthetic biology to make such cells safer and better contained by actually developing synthetic gene circuits that themselves serve as safety switches so that a cell that escapes from a lab can't survive outside the lab or a cell that was programmed to function inside your body will not be able to survive outside of your body and or could be eliminated from your body by taking a small molecule should you have adverse effects or you finished your therapy. And so we and others in the community have introduced the safety elements and biocontainment elements in order to address several of the points you raised. 
Yeah, so uh, my next question is regarding the, the vibrating insole. So you also created a vibrating insole for enhancing balance. And, and, and once again, that's interesting because you also did cross-country track and field in Holy, in Holy Cross. And what's also interesting is I also do cross-country track and field in my school. I'm in my third year. So as both of us know, balance and stability is a key for any great runner. So I just want to ask, how does the vibrating insole help enhance balance? And should I buy a pair? So the vibrating insole helps by delivering low amounts of noise. Noise not in the form of a loud sound, but noise mm -hmm. in the form of random vibrations, in this case, mechanical vibrations, similar to what would be random noise electrically, which would be static on the old radios or TVs that we had when I was growing up. In this case, the mechanical vibration sensitizes the neurons in the bottom of your feet, making them now more sensitive to pick up signals they normally would not pick up. By giving them the ability to sense more, they can now take those, that information in, operate or act on it, creating a more stable response so that you now can better sense where you are in space as you walk or as you run. We have demonstrated that these vibrations, these low-level vibrations function well in 18 to 21-year-olds, enhancing your ability to balance their mood. But more critically, we show you can take a 75-year-old who might be at significant risk of falling and use the vibrating insoles to have them balance as well as a 25-year-old. And so the prime application is to see if you can help your grandparents, maybe my parents, my dad, in a way as his balance deteriorates. Having said that, it could also enhance your balance. I don't think it would make a significant difference on your running, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but if you were looking to do a significant balance activity, maybe it's climbing or uh, skateboarding, uh, um, uh, gymnastics, then they, they could actually be worth trying for somebody of your age and health status. Uh, so something like, uh, I would say surfing, which I enjoy would help enhance the balance. It could, I mean, there you probably want to, obviously you need to make sure everything's waterproof yeah. um, because you're going to need a power source. So, uh, you know, surfing could be pretty hard on anything that's electronic, given the breakdown of electronic components in the face of salt water. But yes, an application like that, maybe it's virtual surfing that you might do in a VR lab. So we're going to start moving towards AI. So you also use AI to discover new antibiotics. So what does that process look like and what role do you see AI playing in our society right now or, or in the future? Yeah, so a few years ago, we teamed up with Regina Barzilay and Tommy Jocula, who are two AI professors at MIT, about seeing could we harness the power of AI to address the antibiotic resistance crisis. This highly concerning crisis going on in the background of the pandemic that bacterial pathogens are growing more and more resistant or less susceptible to being killed by our current products. Interestingly, for your listeners, watchers, viewers of this podcast, that the the golden ages of antibiotic discovery in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, basically before the biotech revolution, before the AI revolution. We took this on and, and what we did was really quite straightforward. We, we put together a training library of 2,500 molecules of drugs, basically 1,700 FDA approved drugs, as well as 800 natural compounds taken from plants and insects. We apply these to E. coli, a bacterial pathogen and commonly used model organism in biotech labs, and asked which of those molecules exhibited antibacterial activity as evidenced by inhibiting the growth of E. coli. We then took that information, just saying yes or no, antibacterial or not, 
along with the structural information on each compound and trained a deep neural net, so an AI model and computer that could look bond by bond, substructure by substructure, scaffold by scaffold within each molecule to associate it with being with antibacterial activity or not. We then took that trained model and applied it to a number of different large libraries of compounds that are found in computers and asked which of the molecules in those libraries are predicted to make for good antibiotics but don't look like existing antibiotics. And on the first library, which consisted of a drug repurposing library of 6,100 molecules, only one molecule fit that bill, and that was a molecule we called halicin, which turned out to be remarkably potent. So very strong against uh, multi-drug resistant, extensively drug resistant, pan-resistant pathogens. We then also applied to a very large library, 1.5 billion molecules, demonstrating that Again, we could find a number of new molecules. In this case, we identified hundreds predicted to be new antibiotics. We tested 23 or 24 of these, eight of which turned out to be very powerful antibiotics, two of which have activity against major pathogens. Our direction now is we've launched what we're calling the Antibiotics AI Project at MIT, a very exciting effort to use AI both to discover and design novel antibiotics, really with the audacious goal and with support from the Audacious Project that's part of TED to discover design seven new antibiotics against seven of the world's deadly pathogens over the next seven years. And it's ambitious, but we are confident we can actually make great progress. Yeah, so uh, talk about Halicin. And once again, it, 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 it's a new first new antibiotic compound in three years, kills over 35 powerful bacteria. So what do you see, uh, do you see Halicin having a role currently in COVID-19 right now? You know, it's interesting, and, and what's been underappreciated in COVID-19 pandemic is the important role of bacterial infection. So COVID-19 is a viral infection, mm -hmm. but one out of seven patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19 have a bacterial co-infection. 50% of the patients who die from COVID-19 have a bacterial co-infection. Going back to the Spanish flu, which we don't hear so much about anymore, but of a decade, a century ago, it was more deadly in terms of its impact across the globe than the current pandemic. And it was largely so deadly because of bacterial co-infections and it was in the age before antibiotics. Halicin, I think is interesting and promising. It has some toxic toxicity issues that we're now working on through a medicinal chemistry standpoint and looking to see if we can maintain its high activity against the pathogens but reduce its toxicity in human cells. But at minimum, it could serve as a very powerful topical antibiotic against nasty pathogens like Acinobacter baumani, which are often found in skin wounds. Yeah, so, uh, so I'm going to ask you a question. So recently, there are many companies, you've probably heard Neuralink, that was created by Elon, and several other companies have they've been trying to create a brain-computer interface. So what do you have to see regarding this potential emerging technology that could save uh, a lot of lives? You know, I think the brain interface, I think it would, it, I don't think that that technology will necessarily save lives as much as enhance the life of individuals who have lost their ability to control limbs uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. I think the advances I've seen are quite exciting. So we were interested in this going back 30 years ago. And the challenge there was getting after suitable interface with the uh, proper number of neurons. That's advanced still in an invasive manner. So I'm hopeful for non-invasive, but also our ability to learn and break down the patterns that are produced and understand what they might mean have advanced very nicely. And I'm hopeful that they'll continue to advance with these various efforts um, in the coming decade or so. 
Um, we've seen some, some very promising things, but it still remains a big challenge of working out the relationship between the signals that are collected directly from the neurons or at the surface, say of the scalp, from the brain, and what's being intended by the person generating those signals. And I think we need advanced, further advances in the electrode interfaces and further advances in the AI abilities to break down those signals. So, uh, so I know once again, you develop many products that are FDA approved. So how do you develop a product thinking about this concept of pushing the idea to phase one, two, and three trials? You know, my main job is a professor, so professor at MIT and Harvard. And we, and our main, my main job, primarily focused on doing blue sky innovative work to demonstrate a new idea or concept of platform works, get after proof of concept. It's not a product, and at best is a pre-prototype. To actually move toward a product, what you critically need to do is partner with an incredibly good design team in a company that maybe you start or a company that exists and a team that is gonna champion your tech and, and move it through. It is very hard, you know, the valley of death is real of that gap between the type of work I do that might lead to an interesting research paper and a product you might be able to get prescribed by a doctor or buy in Brookstone. And there are not as many people with the talents to bridge that gap, but it's then finding those right groups and talents and then get the right resources that can get behind it to actually work through all the challenges. And it's non-trivial. So in fact, I think there are a remarkable number of cool technologies out there that never became a product. And it wasn't that because they didn't work, it's that nobody championed them or found the resources, both from a talent standpoint and capital standpoint to bring them to reality. Yeah, so we're gonna start shifting towards COVID-19 a bit now. So you're a part of a team that made a mask to detect COVID-19. So I'm really fascinated by this discovery. And yes, we talked about the paper-based diagnostics, but uh, growing the mask, can you first of all talk about how your mask can distinguish between COVID-19 and other coronaviruses? Because once again, this has been a big question lately regarding the accuracy of PCR testing for COVID-19. Yeah, so our work on the face mask grew out of our recognition in the paper-based work, which really is broadly around cell-free freeze-dried synthetic biology. And when Keith did the work that led to the paper-based diagnostics, he also uncovered that the ability to freeze-dry cell-free extracts and synthetic biology components were not limited to paper. They could actually function in any porous substrate, plastic, quartz, clothing. So prior to the pandemic, we were advancing an effort led by Peter Negon and Louis Soaks in, in my lab toward wearable synthetic biology. The idea you could spot cell-free extracts along with synthetic biology components onto patches of different elements of clothing to create a wearable diagnostic for healthcare workers, first responders, military personnel. And we're advancing efforts around, for example, the lab coat of the future that a doctor or physician's assistant could wear on his her rounds to see if there's a pathogen on the loose in, in a hospital center. In the face of the pandemic, we pivoted our efforts to see how we could adjust the pandemic and develop the face mask. It's specifically an insert that can be added to any face mask and you'd wear it for 10 minutes or an hour. Uh, and it can collect the water vapor or water particles you give off. And if infected, those water droplets elements would contain viral particles that you could then detect. And we actually use CRISPR elements, CRISPR sensors, to detect whether or not there are uh, viral particles there. And you can then program CRISPR specifically to target sequences 
that are specific to SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, the underlying COVID-19, to differentiate it from other circulating coronaviruses and or other viruses like the seasonal flu. And we demonstrated this could work really well at very, very high sensitivity. So we could detect down to 500 viral particles, which only would take a few minutes to collect if you were infected. Yeah, so uh, I just want to ask, is this mass just, is it, it has not been commercially released, right? It has not been commercially released. So this is one of these academic pre-prototypes, but we are working at some level with Sherlock Biosciences, the company I mentioned earlier, to see how this could be advanced. And in discussions with a number of companies, both lateral flow assay developing companies and distribution companies that we hope we'll be able to partner with soon to advance this at minimum as a surveillance tool and possible research tool and maybe as a prescription diagnostic. Yeah, so I just want you to estimate the, the, the how much it would cost for the, the mass that could detect COVID-19 if it was commercially released. We, our target is to have it for just a few dollars. Oh, so okay. We think that, and it, it would likely be sold either as a mask with the insert in or the insert that you could be added to whatever your favorite mask mm -hmm. is, oh. and, but have it low cost so that it could be widely used in the U.S. and other countries, including low resource countries. All right. Okay. So uh, now we're going to move on to vaccines. So you say you're going to make a vaccine candidate for COVID-19. You're trying to repurpose the BCG vaccine. It was originally for tuberculosis to make it a coronavirus vaccine. So where do you see your repurposed BCG vaccine fitting in if it was commercially available along with the mRNA vaccines that are being made by Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, and Moderna in the COVID-19 vaccine spectra? Yeah, so our early efforts at the pandemic was to see could we repurpose BCG by endowing with the ability to produce uh, antigens associated with SARS-CoV-2 that then could trigger an immune response. And we were able to demonstrate that it could work very well to express these antigens on the surface and demonstrated it in vitro. As we advanced it toward animal work, Moderna and Pfizer took off very, very positively and amazingly and productively towards their mRNA vaccines. And so we did not push through some technical challenges on our mouse work and have tabled it for now. We do see that the BCG vaccine has great potential because it can be lyophilized, meaning freeze-dried, and thus very low cost, easy to transport, no need for refrigeration, and possibly could involve just a single shot. We are exploring how it might also be used orally as a delivery. Having said all that, it's also interesting to put in context that the mRNA technology that Moderna has developed actually has its origins in synthetic biology. So we were part of the team back in 2010, collaborated with Derek Rossi, one of the founders of Moderna, and George Daly now, Dean of Harvard Medical School on developing and using synthetic mRNA as a way to reprogram and redifferentiate induced pluripotent, or to create induced pluripotent stem cells that can be redifferentiated. And this was the technology that led to the founding of Moderna. And we didn't focus on vaccines or therapeutics, but said it could be used in this regard, but actually focused on regenerative medicine. And it's so exciting to see that this technology was then further advanced by Moderna uh, and then developed beautifully as a highly functioning. Yeah, speaking of Dr. Rossi, um, I believe I told you in the email that I also interviewed him as well. So he did have yes. his point of perspective on his mRNA vaccine. So we're starting to move on. Uh, there's some people out there and regarding adopting this new experimental mRNA technology. 
and and once again, the U.S. government has said about these people. So after mere months of testing, is now being administrated globally to billions of people. So how is it possible to know if there could be any unintended effects that could show up now in the future? And can you share any of your main concerns? You know, I, I don't have concerns on 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 this vaccine. I think it's remarkable. I think it's been applied to a very large number of diverse folks. I think what we'll see is it expands into age groups in this country through trials and then globally into larger populations and likely larger diverse populations. We'll need to keep an eye on potential adverse effects that might be linked with confounding factors, whether it's medications or genetic background or other conditions. It's been remarkably positive on what I've seen on very low side effects that are coming up. But you, you, know, you, you always need to keep an eye on that for any new development. My sense is there, these mRNA vaccines are remarkably safe and remarkably effective. It will be interesting to see what additional applications, indications they'll be applied to, and to what extent we'll get similar efficacy levels. Hopefully the answer is we, we will, and but it's, you know, we're waiting to see what will be the next indication that will come out of Moderna or Pfizer. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, no, let's, let's go to post-COVID-19. So is synthetic biology going to have a huge impact uh, in post-COVID-19? I think synthetic biology is going to turn out to be one of the more defining and important technologies of the century. I think it's through the vaccines and diagnostics, I think it's had a, a, an amazing impact on the current pandemic. And its impact, I think, will continue to grow in healthcare around the development of diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics around the development of tools that can help us better understand the complexity of biology and chemistry. And touching upon other aspects of our society, challenges in food and water, challenges in sustainability, environmentalism, climate change challenges in energy. I think we'll see synthetic biology, this use of biology as technology, really being harnessed to address some very, very big challenges that may take decades in some cases to have true meaningful impact, but I think it's gonna be an exciting next few decades for sure. Yeah, so uh, what are some ways to prevent a future pandemic? Well, I'm not, you know, I, I think we need to do better at monitoring the emergence of new pathogens. I think we need to do better to have systems in place to contain a new outbreak. I think we need to do better at having rapid platforms in place for developing diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics. So I think the vaccine's truly a success story on how fast they develop. Diagnostics less so, and then therapeutics even less so. So I think we need to ramp up our ability to respond, but I think we also need to ramp up our ability to monitor what's out there through sequencing, through checking. I think we need to do a better job at reducing crowding and with wildlife and other forms where the probability we might see another jump is fairly high for sure. And uh, I think turning to new technologies, including AI to help us track these data and understand these data is gonna be critical to be better prepared for the next pandemic. Yeah, so uh, current AI and synthetic biology. So what is the most concerning way that synthetic biology and AI could be used in a harmful way? And are we being naive that people wouldn't intentionally use it for their own advantage? You know, I, I think together, I mean, when you look at it, it, it's certainly around the idea of significant meaningful gain of function that would have a bioweapon in mind. I think you know, the possibilities are endless and 
unfortunately remarkable. Having said that, my bigger concern is nature, and that is what nature has in store for us. I think there are so many organisms out there, and they're feeling various pressures from overcrowding, from antibiotic use, from other stresses, uh, changes in the environment. That you know, nature's got, I'm sure, some pretty nasty things in its in the works that we need to be ready for. That doesn't diminish the minimize the threat of. Uh, uh, what could happen here, but um, I think I'm much more concerned about natural outbreaks than about terror. So uh, let's say you have the ability to time travel 50 years into the future. So what does the world look like and how does bioengineering and AI fit into that? You know, I, I think when you look on the future, I think we need to turn to these, these complex data systems and the ability to engineer biology to address, against some of our bigger challenges. We have big food and water, environmentalism, environmental challenges, climate change, uh, healthcare, and energy. So I think we, we are increasingly going to see biotech companies, biology companies, and those also the couple with AI as, as being some of the big and more important groups that are out there. All right, so what advice did you receive during your career that shaped your career or success? You know, I think one of the more critical was from the Dean of Engineering at the time at BU, which was my first faculty appointment was, and it was Charles Lissy. And he, he encouraged me just to put my head down and work on something that's really exciting to me, exciting to my group and exciting to the outside world and to try to ignore all the other noise that goes on and just really commit. And really remarkably simple advice, but it's, interesting that I hadn't heard that. I hadn't been told that. And it had a very, very big impact. So as opposed to kind of just doing stuff and get, doing the next thing, he really influenced me to think very carefully about what that next thing would be and to really make sure it was exciting. Mm. So uh, once, uh, and once again, you're a teacher as well. So what advice would you give to students who want to pursue biology or biotech? You know, I think it's a great space to pursue for sure. So I, you know, I, I think for young folks, I think you want to learn as much as you can and whatever your style is. And so it's really doing a deep dive in different spaces, talking to people, reading, watching videos, maybe getting an internship if you can, but to see what's out there and to challenge yourself to think. I think as you explore and get excited, I think make commitment to learn as much as you can. I think having the smart machines at our fingertips makes us lazy. We don't make the commitment to learn as much and become the experts. I think it's really to make a commitment to be an expert in a particular area of interest to you. And then to spend time thinking each day as well, to reflect on what you read, reflect on what you learned, you know, commit yourself to using your brain to think about new and exciting ideas. All right, so um, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that we should tell our audience? No, I mean, I, I wish I was 30 years younger. I think it's an exciting time to be a young person. There's so much to be discovered, so much to be developed, so much to be invented, we need young, engaged, talented people to take on these challenges. And certainly I think synthetic biology and broadly AI are two areas that uh, will certainly lead to tremendous developments, positive developments that will make for so many exciting careers. All right, so uh, thank you, Dr. Collins for being part of the DG Early Morning Show and giving me the opportunity to interview you so people can know more about and once again, specifically teenagers and kids can get to know more about biomedical devices and synthetic biology.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.